Hello and welcome to episode 60 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with 10 years experience in Brazil and China. This is our first episode of the new year, which will be the third year of the podcast's existence. I have a great slate of interviews planned for 2022, but if there's any particular journalists you'd like to hear from, please do send me suggestions either by email at foreignpod at gmail.com or tweet at me at at foreignpod on Twitter. For this episode, I spoke to Stephen Gibbs, a freelance journalist living in Caracas, the capital of Venezuela. Stephen principally works as the Latin America correspondent for the Times of London, Venezuela correspondent for The Economist, and as a documentary producer for Chinese television's international channel, CGTN. You'll notice that Stephen is connected to our previous guests, Anthony Bodel and Lucia Newman, who were in Cuba at the same time as him. Definitely go back to those episodes if you want to hear more about Cuba. And of course, Stephen comes with his own anecdote about Fidel Castro, this time related to Castro and Ernest Hemingway, as well as a story about being kicked out of the country. But there's a lot more to his story than just Cuba, He began, believe it or not, writing gossip items and then producing children's news programs in the UK. Now, in what is at least his third journalistic incarnation, he is one of the top journalists covering Venezuela. In this conversation, he'll give the clearest explanation I've heard of why the Venezuela story got so much attention just a few years ago and why it has now died down. Also, it only took 60 episodes, but I'm glad someone finally shouted out the film Anchorman as one of their favorite pieces of media featuring journalists. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Stephen Gibbs, a correspondent for The Times of London, The Economist, and CGTN Television, based in Caracas, Venezuela. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Stephen. Hey, that's my pleasure. To warm up a little bit, if you could set the scene for us where you are physically, the space around you, and geographically in the world, and if you could tell us a little bit about what your past work week has been like. Well, interestingly, I'm in London at the moment, in the house where I grew up in, in Wimbledon, in South London, and I'm just here visiting family, really. Uh, my father still lives in this house, he has in since 1962. And usually I'm based in Caracas, so I've I've just got here yesterday. Not especially easy, even now, flying around. I had to, I flew via Istanbul to get here. Hmm. And yes, I'm talking to you from the bedroom where I spent the first, well, most of the first 18 or 20 years or something of my life. Hmm. But um, it's good to speak to you. And the, uh, the weather's the sort of Latin American cliché of London or the truth about London in which it's a bit drizzly and quite grey and a little cold, but it is November. Sure. And have you had to work this week or are you taking time off to go to to be in London? This will be time off, but I left Venezuela just after the municipal and governor elections there. They were held on the 21st of November, so I left a couple of days after that. Yeah, that was a sort of punctuation mark. It was a mix of interest and and lack of interest about those elections really <laughs> you know a few people saying this could be potentially a bit of a turning point I mean including the government saying that that um, you know at last Venezuela will hold a reasonably fair election and this would put it on the path to a sort of more democratic future 
try selling that to your editors that you know there's a uh, <laughs> particularly in probably easier in the United States but certainly in in the UK there are municipal elections in Venezuela and probably if I'm honest not much is going to change after them shall we do a story uh, the answer is yeah we'll do some shortish stories but it's not a big front page spread unfortunately right and it has the weird timing where there's also Chilean elections and I think elections in a third country too. Uh, Yes, actually, almost, I think in the bigger scheme of things, probably the Chilean elections were potentially more interesting, setting up that country for a sort of polarised left-right battle in December. But again, you sometimes have that problem, I'm talking really of the, the Times, the UK newspaper there, where how much space do they have for Latin American stories on any one day. And when you've got two elections on the same day, one gets a bit squeezed out. And actually, in our case, the coverage of Chile was quite minimal, but hopefully we're, we'll have another crack at it in December. That's the good thing about elections that are, a, you know, there's a first round and a second round. Sure. Okay, cool. Well, uh, we'll get back into Venezuela a bit later on. But for the podcast, we like to get an idea of how people got to where they are today um, and we like to start way back at the beginning. If you could start with where you were born and where you grew up and a little bit about what that was like and if anything planted the seed of interest in either being a foreign correspondent or working abroad early on in your life. Sure, yeah. Well, I was born here, as it happens, because I'm speaking to you from London, in London. Mm-hmm. The youngest of five brothers. Oh, wow. Grew up here in South London, in Wimbledon. I went to the local independent, then boys-only school, pretty near where where I'm talking to you from. At school, I did work for, write for, there was a school magazine called Cabbages and Kings, (laughs) named after a line in a Lewis Carroll poem, I think. Why did I do that? It was mainly a, a, to get out of the alternative. It was sort of quite an old-fashioned school in a way, or maybe quite typical in those days, where one option or one thing most people had to do, I think, once a week was join something called the CCF, which was a sort of boys' mini army to prepare you for a possible hmm. military career. And I didn't really fancy that, not for any reason more than I thought, you know, it's a bit silly parading in the freezing cold for hours on end. <laughs> and the way out of that, it was almost sort of put as a sort of conscientious objector thing, was to, uh, one of the options was to write for the school magazine. So that's what I did and possibly sort of pushed me a little bit towards journalism. But there was another reason, and that is actually I come from a journalistic family to a certain extent. My great-grandfather was a journalist, uh, hmm. a World War One correspondent, and my grandfather was a writer and worked for various... He was, he was the London correspondent of the New Yorker for a bit. Oh, wow. My father, my father wasn't a journalist, but there was a little bit of, perhaps, not pressure at all, but he, my father always felt, I think, slightly guilty that he hadn't sort of carried on the family line. And there was perhaps a little bit of hope that one of his five sons would, and, and I was the last one on the list, in a way, as the youngest. Uh, so, yeah, that might have planted the seed a bit. I certainly enjoyed writing at school and found it relatively easy. So that was a you know a reason to do it. I focused on English, English literature, not necessarily because I loved reading books, but I found that the, the essay writing came quite naturally and that I read English literature at university too. So that might have put me on the path, as I say. 
Sure. Where did you go to university? I went to Cambridge where, so in the last year, companies used to come and sort of try and meet the undergraduates in their last year. And I'm talking sort of legal firms and accountancy firms and bankers and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I thought I have absolutely no way I want to decide my future so quickly. So I decided I'd opt out of that and didn't go to any of those meetings. And (laughs) afterwards came back to live with my parents in London for a few, what I thought would be a few months. And another friend of mine from the same university who was in the same what am I going to do with the rest of my life dilemma he was the one who said why don't we together start writing a few articles and try and get them into a newspaper because he discovered that that is the sort of barrier you need to be able to jump you need to get your name in print and then begin a bit of a portfolio before you even really apply for mm-hmm. any more formal job so luckily he was sort of more had a bit of uh, sort of pushed to him and and he decided let's do that and together we wrote a few sort of articles on interesting London squares and the people who lived there and we got them published in the Evening Standard which is the sort of a newspaper that's published during the day and sort of aimed at evening commuters Mm -hmm. and from there I got a few shifts on the actual paper mainly on the gossip column believe it or not (laughs) uh, which was a sort of where you put the the sort of infantry soldiers that you didn't mind getting rid of sort of thing. And that involved going to theatre openings and that sort of thing and trying to find any celebrity that would give you a one or two sentence quote and build a story around that. So I used to do that and then you come back, phone it in. That was the main way you deliver would be by dictating your story to someone at the Evening Standard overnight team who'd... um, Hmm who'd file it for you. And that was the beginning. So yeah, a lot of people start out doing, you know, shift work at papers or radio or whatnot, which I think is a thing that's pretty common in the UK, much less so in the United States, kind of, you know, a precarious, almost freelancer style existence. So how long did you do that for? and, And what was the next step for you? Yeah, I think it was probably sort of six months to a year. And then I was there able to sell myself as someone who, yeah, he works, he's a journalist, you know, you could pretty much call yourself a journalist, (laughs) despite having done it not very much. There was another newspaper in the UK called the Daily Telegraph, and it was launching a version of its newspaper for children called the Young Telegraph. Mm -hmm. And someone said, hey, you know, this is a new little bit of a newspaper and it needs writers. Why don't you put your name forward? And I did, and I suspect not many others did. And as a result, I found myself working in an office in London, writing this weekly sort of insert for the paper called The Young Telegraph. Hmm. Um, You know, very simple journalism in many ways but a really good way to see how the layout is done and the process it was like kind of work experience but you know a bit closer to the actual thing being produced every week and it actually gave me a very good opportunity because I then used to go to press conferences 
aimed at children's news and children's TV and that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. at one of those, I met a bunch of people from the BBC that worked for a programme called Newsround, which is a children's daily news bulletin that everyone who's sort of British would have heard of, you know, something we sort mm-hmm. of grew up with and joked about, etc. And I said to them, oh, you know, I don't know much about the BBC, but I'd love to see how it works or whatever. And right place at the right time, the guy said, well, we do have opportunities for work experience over the summer, a couple of weeks. You're welcome to come in for a week or whatever. So I did. And lucky break again at the end I think it was two weeks in it in fact at the end the guy said look do you want a six-month contract and therefore I'd sort of jumped that pretty big barrier really of getting into the BBC and working within that amazing institution really and there were a whole lot of people in that program called Newsround that then went on to become stars much uh, you know on a completely different level than I ever managed, which was, uh, I mean, Christian Guru Murthy, who's a presenter of, of Channel 4 News, Juliet Morris, who became a quite a sort of well-known BBC presenter. And there I was within the BBC building. And from that job, I became a producer on the 9 o'clock news, which is was the sort of main evening bulletin at the time. Oh, wow. And that, that was what really set me on the path towards becoming a foreign correspondent, because I'd be sent occasionally abroad as the producer with some BBC correspondents and it was sort of combination of of watching the really good ones and thinking god it'd be good to you know this is an amazing job this guy's or woman is doing and the way they put this all together is is impressive and I wish I could be anything like as good of them there was that and there was also working as the producer with some of the ones perhaps who were less good and thinking wait a sec I've just written pretty much 75% of what this guy's just said on TV. Why don't I do his job? Um, And that's what made me think, right, I'm going to try and be a a correspondent of some sort and let's see how I do it. And the great thing about the BBC is it's like one enormous university where you can pop around from one bit to another. So I said to one of the managers, look, I'd love to apply for a foreign posting. uh, And they went yeah but you haven't done any radio have you so you need to do at least six months or a year working in radio Hmm. before you have a chance in any of these interviews so I went off and worked for the world service for a good year and there I started to be sent abroad mainly it was the by then we're talking sort of late 90s and there was an opportunity to go to Israel quite a bit because they always needed backup, and it was the second intifada there. That gave me a bit more sort of on-stage appearance, so to speak, so that people saw that I could report a bit, and I had a, several interesting stories I was involved with, and that put me in a position where I could apply pro- with a chance of getting uh, some of these jobs, and the Cuba job came up, and I applied and got it, and that was really what set me off. To becoming a foreign correspondent and and to be based in Latin America too. Sure. Yeah. Wow. Maybe I missed it, but I mean, how does one go from doing children's news to go going to the nine o'clock <laughs> news? That that just seemed like a huge jump. And I, I was also curious if there's a big barrier between, you know, I imagine a lot of people want to be on camera, and there are a lot more people working behind the camera 
I was just curious about those two jumps. Okay, so the for Newsround, I was like became the foreign news reporter. So and there was the Bosnia War was happening then, and I tell you, explaining the Bosnian War hmm. to children is a lot more difficult than writing it up for adults. And I think the BBC sort of appreciate that. If you can sort of summarise a story in a format that a child would understand, that doesn't necessarily disqualify you. It, it might be a, a sort of advantage to get onto the grown-up news, so to speak. So, no, that jump wasn't particularly huge, and so that, that, wasn't, that wasn't too much of a problem. What you also say about that gap between the people on camera and the people, the production team... No, that is a big issue. That So my staff job at the BBC was as a producer. And despite then, for example, going off and becoming the Cuba correspondent for five years and then actually the Mexico correspondent, I was always within the organisation a producer on attachment to the sort of news-gathering side of things. You know, there is a triangle, so it's, it was always quite difficult to fully jump and be told, right, now you're actually your staff and you're always going to be working as a correspondent and reporter. They prefer to keep people under the sort of title of producer so that they can bring them back from these relatively, what they all think, of course, in the head office is a nice cushy job in Cuba and bring them back and (laughs) make them do the night shift writing what the presenter is going to read out. So, yeah, there is a bit of a barrier there, but fortunately the BBC is is also a huge sort of organization so there and there are all sorts of ways around it as well yeah I mean there are places like that have only a couple people who fly around the world and you can be whatever the producer is in whatever location and you get big footed by the same I don't know Mm. half a dozen people all the time and you, you see that in American television news too like somebody will be the chief foreign correspondent and they'll literally fly wherever like they're not specialized anyway yes. they'll just be the person being put on camera who might or might not actually know much about whatever place yeah. they've flown to yeah that said though i mean i've been big-footed many many times throughout my career and i know <laughs> it's a big issue but i i honestly have never really minded it most cases it's someone who's really experienced coming in and it's sort of privileged to be up close and see how they do it, sort of thing. So I've, I've, and, and also, it's a career suicide to make a big complaint, complaint about it either. So sure. I've never really had a had a huge problem with that. I suppose the only issue is, is as you get older, is if and unfortunately, I'm, you know, I left the BBC, so it didn't really necessarily become an issue. But I think that is more of an issue if you're the old hand who's been in Kabul for twenty years, and then someone fifteen years younger comes in and starts telling the world what you've just told them five minutes before over a cup of tea i can yeah of course that's a bit annoying and it and does happen right yeah okay so you get sent to cuba i mean was that seen as a plum assignment at the time or or how was it viewed it's a good question i mean i th- it was considered a, a slightly offbeat one you've got to bear in mind that I mean, although the BBC is a global organisation, you know, its head office is obviously in London and and its big programmes are are sort of aimed at the UK. So what is the interest of Cuba necessarily to that audience? It's not like 
getting one of the big jobs in sort of Washington or the Middle East or wherever. So it was a bit, mm-hmm. it was a sort of bit niche. But those in the know knew that it was fantastic. You know, you were the staff correspondent on a Caribbean island. When you go out there to your posting, everyone else on the plane is going on holiday. And, you know, I was living in a great apartment in the central of Havana. And it's a sort of fascinating place to get to know. In fact, I think the reason I got the job was that it's a few times in my career where, you know, you've had to swat, so to speak, for the interview. And I just enjoyed every minute of it. I I read all it's sort of incessantly about about Cuba. I found it fascinating. I found the whole story fascinating. So nice job in many ways, but also a journalistic nightmare, really, because it's a very, very controlled system. The Cubans expect the foreign press corps to behave like diplomats, as their sort of team abroad do too, to a certain extent, so representing the government. And they get you know, they're very shirty at anything that they think is disrespectful or whatever or unfair to their system. I mean, it's a very, very cleverly and effectively controlled form of government sort of, of control of uh, control is a slightly excessive word, but, but sort of management of the foreign press they allow in. Now, the BBC was always had a sort of post there because it had since the 60s. So the way it works in Cuba is, right, OK, we have a BBC person, we have a AP person, we have a Reuters person. And then in the late 90s, CNN managed to get in. And these are considered privileged positions for the media organisations that they don't want to give up. So that was made clear to the BBC and to CNN that, you know, you're very lucky. Uh, You have a competitive advantage as well that Bloomberg aren't here or the other new kids on the block couldn't get a permanent representative there. So uh, that's why the BBC hung on to it. And the sort of carrot, which wasn't sort of explicitly stated or, you know, may not have been true, but certainly I think within the BBC and probably other organisations when I was there was, let's just make sure we're still there for when this rumoured change may or may not happen. And the change, of course, that everyone was expecting to happen was that Fidel Castro would rule until he died and then things could change quite dramatically. Now, it didn't turn out like that, but I and I think my three, or certainly my two predecessors when they were sent out there was sort of the feeling was you're there to watch probably the end of Castro. You know, by the time I got there, he was in his 80s and he was definitely slowing down and the feeling was it could possibly be at any moment. But when that day I first arrived in Havana, my predecessor who was handing over said, don't expect anything to change here quickly and for goodness sake, don't think this is some kind of... Castro death watch it's the man's got plenty of years in him and just do your best as if it's as a normal story so to speak and I mean looking at just the chronology of the years you were there I mean Fidel went on to live for almost another decade after you left I think right and mm. I'm just curious in the time there did you have opportunities to talk to him did you cover his epically long speeches what mm. did you have any first-hand experience with him or was he mostly 
reclusive because of ill health at that time? Or, or what was your experience like covering Fidel Castro? So, yeah, I've been there. I've been in Havana for just a few weeks. And one of the first stories I did was a story about the Hemingway papers that were kept in this lovely old villa that Ernest Hemingway used to live in and is now a museum. And uh, it was one of those stories that gets repeated a lot, and that is, you know, the, the sort of lead-in is in a rare sign of collaboration between the old enemies, the United States and Cuba, the Hemingway papers are being re-archived or there's a new part of the of that villa that's being restored with American donation money and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one of these events which included at least, I think, one of the Hemingway grandchildren was there and a few American academics, and I went along, and I seem to remember the BBC saying, it might be a story, might not, but, you know, off you go, and I was very happy to do so. And we were standing around the half-empty swimming pool where Ava Gardner supposedly once swam naked, or probably more than once, Mm -hmm. in this sort of romantic setting, just talking to these academics about, you know, building an air-conditioned place to keep the papers or something like that. And then round the corner walks Fidel Castro, comes straight round the swimming pool, <laughs> and there's a bit of a gasp. And he said, oh, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Um, you know, I, I won't keep you long. I just heard you were here, and I thought I'd come and say hello. And he came and stood next to, I think it might have been, I, I should remember, I think it might have been a Hemingway grandchild who's an actress too. And he took a shine to her, of course, immediately, put his arm around her. And then gave what he would said would be just a few words and it was it wasn't too bad it was probably about 45 minutes or an hour i mean sort of inappropriate really but but nevertheless and he told uh, by by this stage I, I mean i'll tell you later i mean one of the things i noticed about fidel castro was he was you know he was losing it to a certain extent he wasn't anything the sort of orator he once was sure but there he gave a rather charming little speech to be quite honest about his relationship with Hemingway which has always been a slight mystery you know why did you know what did Hemingway think of the revolution etc etc why did he leave before he went and he committed suicide Mm -hmm. and and one of the things Castro said was you know what when you're a young man as he of course was in the 60s you just think everyone's going to live forever and I wish I'd got to know Hemingway a lot better and I didn't have a chance you know we only met it's just a couple of times or something and we didn't I didn't know much about this great writer, and I rather wish wish I had. And it was, it seemed to come from the heart. Actually, it seemed a genuine uh, recollection. And meeting and sort of being next to him, I wasn't at all. I mean, I knew I sort of knew about him, about Castro, and I, you know, I wasn't at all in awe of of him really. But it was it was more like kind of meeting a film star, that sort of feeling of someone who's mm-hmm. so recognisable that it's rather odd and you've sort of seen so much and then when you're physically standing next to him you think goodness me that's actually the same person that you know we've read and seen and all the rest of it about so that was the first of uh, of a few meetings and I know Antje Bodel mentioned this too he had the same regret I never managed to do a proper sit-down interview with Fidel Castro because mm-hmm. it was kind of impossible really in those days but, uh, 
My excuse would be he wasn't really talking to the British media. If he was going to do a proper interview, he'd do it with Barbara Waters and, you know, get on the US networks because that was the relationship he really cared about. But uh, no, the beginning of a fascinating five years in, in Havana. And I'm trying to remember the... I talked to Lucia Newman and uh, Anthony Bodle, both at time in Cuba. Mm. and Same time as me, yeah. Same time yeah. as you. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I seem to remember one or both of them were kind of... They kind of left on not the best terms with uh, the Cuban government. I, I think one of them was basically, you know, asked to leave. I'm trying to remember who it was. Um, mm. Or they wouldn't renew their visa or something like that. Mm. That was Anthony, yeah. Uh, how, how, does it, how does it go for you? Does, I uh, mean, is it a... Uh, oh, even worse, actually. Um, <laughs> so, you know, really difficult place, as, as others would have told you. You know, you know you're being spied on this incredibly sensitive government just constantly sending messages that we're watching you, be careful, and we take serious offence at certain types of reporting. Or if we think you're being rude about Cuba, we can make things very difficult and we can possibly throw you out sort of thing. So that, that was all made quite clear. And there's a, sort of, there's a dance that you have to play with the foreign ministry authority called the CPI, just to make sure you continue to have a acceptable relationship with them but at the same time do your job as best as possible then in 2006 Fidel got taken seriously ill he almost died diverticulitis a rupture in his intestine I think most people would now agree he probably made matters worse by micromanaging it directing the surgery he had immediately afterwards which went wrong it really really set him back and then and uh, foreign surgeon I think mm. in the end saved his life for another decade as it happens but that was really the beginning of the end of him he retired and his brother took over in 2006 and then formally took over in 2008 2006 when that happened it was a very very dramatic time we didn't know whether Fidel was dead there were plenty of suspicions and it was completely possible that he was and this was being hushed up we didn't know if he'd come back and all of these questions were not just, of course, being asked by the foreign correspondents, but by the Cuban people. It was, it was an extraordinary time. You know, what had happened to this man who had cast a spell over the country and seemed to have disappeared for a bit? And together with Gary Marks, who was the correspondent from the Chicago Tribune, who was a friend of mine, and, and we used to work together a little bit because we were non-competitors, so we could go... I was mainly doing TV and radio, and so we could sort of go and do the same story and or, or talk to talk to each other a bit about how we were covering stuff quite openly and without keeping secrets as some you know sometimes you do for professional reasons together we we said you know what I think this is time just to cover this story completely normally forget all this paranoia about upsetting the CPI paranoia about going and talking to whoever we want and asking them what do they think of the situation and just broadcasting it so in those dramatic weeks, I went out onto the streets of Havana and on radio said to people, right, this is a potential moment for change or we don't know what's happening. What do you want? And a lot of people, of course, said, I think this country needs to change. I think Fidel has been this or that, but, you know, we would like maybe a different beginning for this country. Lots of others, of course, said were highly emotional and and 
were convinced that Fidel would be back and rule for another 80 years. But there were, there were several sort of shades of opinion. And I decided, you know, just to go ahead and report that and broadcast it. And within three or four months, the CPI decided it was time to renew everyone's accreditation, which had been held back for various reasons for a few years, in fact. So we were all walking around with out-of-date accreditations. And they... Uh, they said, OK, we will be re-accrediting people next week and we'll do it in three consecutive days and we'll send everyone an email when to come in. So the first day there was a list of people to come in. I wasn't on the list. Second day there was another list, still not there. Third list was the third <laughs> and final list and I wasn't there, nor was Gary Marks and nor was the correspondent from El Universal in, in Mexico. And the answer is we had been unaccredited and I was told to go into that this CPI building for a meeting um, you could describe a sort of meeting without coffee a fairly stern faced a foreign ministry official who's the same person who'd always been perfectly friendly and joking around with me just sort of said have you got your current accreditation I said yes he took it away said I'm afraid you won't work in Cuba anymore you don't have to leave immediately and we're not throwing out the BBC that's what they're very specific about but we are you know I'm afraid that's the end of the road for you and I said well please tell me which reports you didn't like and we can discuss this or whatever and they didn't kind of that was it BBC thought that they may be able to protest at a high enough level that that would be reversed and it it wasn't but there was then this sort of rather interesting sort of interregnum period that I was a beneficiary of because I was told by the BBC, don't leave Cuba because we're going to try and sort this out, continuing on my full salary, but you can't work. So uh, I then spent, I think, three or four months in Havana sort of mulling over this annoying thing that I'd lost my accreditation, but actually able to enjoy the the island and I learned to kite surf and waited until supposedly the BBC came up with a solution and after after a bit and this actually reminded me of, of I think there's a scene in The Quiet American similar where you suddenly think has head office actually forgotten about me <laughs> so I thought after three months I'd better perhaps ring them and say you know that thing about me being here and not working and and they went oh god yeah okay and Eventually, I left, and pretty shortly afterwards, someone else came in. So, the, you know, it's it's one of the ways that the government there operates, to, and it works for them, really, is that they sort of manage to swap correspondence. To be fair to them and, and everyone else, actually, I was probably going to leave anyway, and I think maybe they knew that. I think maybe that was part of the reason I was targeted, and I think that's happened to others, including, actually, Anthony Bodle, who I know you've spoken to, is um, they've... Mm-hmm. it's easier to put the pressure on the people who they know their head office are probably going to rotate out anyway. But that was the end of the Havana experience for me. Yeah, and obviously a weird note to end on. Uh, mm. I mean, not exactly how you plan to leave, I'm sure. So, And from there you go to to Mexico. I mean, how, how did that all work out? Yeah, so I went back to London for a bit and pretty quickly got sort of itchy feet and you know the BBC were sort of happy with me so I was in a way in a good position to apply for another job and the Mexico job came up so having briefly thought uh, maybe it's time to 
forget this living abroad thing, living in London. You know, it's quickly changed my mind. Applied for this job, was, was fortunate enough to get it. So, yeah, it was off to Mexico. Interesting time there. I mean, I was thinking of it just the last few days because various stories overlapped with my time there. And one of the biggest, actually, global stories was swine flu, which it was interesting because it, to me, being there when it happened, it seemed to have been sort of hyped. You thought, where are all these people that are suffering from this terrible disease you know why is the bbc sending out biohazard stuff and it didn't seem the two things didn't seem to quite marry you know now we know that you've got to be really really careful when you think one of these things is coming as the evidence was that this was quite potentially a massive global pandemic as it happened it it wasn't but we were we were sort of caught in the middle and i remember trying to find people who were suffering from this illness and finding so few that I convinced myself, well, kind of, it doesn't seem to be nearly as big as people think it might be. In the end, it, it probably wasn't. But, I, you know, as I say, we now know you shouldn't diminish things. And I, I remember there was a lot of concern in the office. In the B, We shared an office with other news organisations and almost everyone's family were ringing up saying we're quite worried about you. You're in the epicentre of this place with a potentially very dangerous disease, you know, are you okay? Are you safe, etc. And I remember saying to my own family, okay, uh, this is after it was all over, slightly surprised that no one emailed or rang up or said anything, you know, <laughs> start worrying how you were. And they said, well, you seemed, you seemed pretty relaxed about it when we saw you sort of on the TV or on doing the radio, so we thought it was probably not a big deal. But I sort of felt rather guilty, really, that I didn't really mean to give that impression. Uh, but obviously I did. I mean, compared to being in Cuba, I imagine Mexico was a much easier place to work. I mean, it's a mm. more violent place, certainly. But uh, I guess uh, whoa, anything else from that time in Mexico stick out to you? Yeah, you know, I mean... Every place has got its advantage and disadvantage. Cuba has the advantage that you're totally safe and it's a sort of managed, very small size, really, in, in, in terms of the scale of areas that you're expected to cover as a foreign correspondent in, in other places. But there's this sort of huge sensitivity and control. In in Mexico, no, there's none of that. You know, you could talk to anyone. There was sort of vibrant politics. There was a serious drug war going on and that was the main story and it was really quite difficult to cover it most of the focus of that was up in Juarez alongside the US border and there were big sort of safety issues from the BBC headquarters that meant they wanted you to cover that story but they also found it quite difficult to get the safety people to approve it so that that was a sort of a bit of a frustration that and I think it's it's quite common still, or maybe more so, is that that I, that thing of being in slightly the wrong place, reporting mm-hmm. about these appalling goings on in Juarez, but doing it from Mexico City, which is never going to be the same. I mean, I did, I went there two or three times, but you know, if I did that again, I would have probably argued that you know, if you want me to cover the drug war, we've got to be much closer to it and do find a safe way to do that rather than just necessarily being in the capital but in terms of life post Havana 
and it's, st- it's still with me now. You know, when I was living there, there really wasn't much in the shops, in the supermarket. You're constantly bringing in stuff that you really wanted from abroad or getting diplomats to bring it in, etc., etc. And going into a fully stocked supermarket, even to this day, I still find a sort of vice-like pleasure from it, you know, because <laughs> it's it's extraordinary thing to be able to, to live in a country where you you can, of course, get enough to survive on. But that sort of Cuban thing of the early 2000s of walking into a supermarket and it's just got empty shelves except 3,000 bottles of vinegar and, you know, 2,000 jars of mayonnaise and that's it you know, <laughs> sort of thing <laughs> so yeah mexico uh, was a, a country and, a, and and mexico city a, a city i enjoyed living in but that was actually a relatively brief posting because after a, just over a year the bbc decided to make all the latin america postings bebese mundo jobs so principally spanish language as their first language correspondence and all the staff correspondents were sort of told to go home. So it was actually in many ways a sensible decision. The idea was we're coming to the end of the era where you should necessarily fly a, some British bloke out to live in Mexico City and report on that. Why not have a Chilean or a Brazilian talking about not necessarily their own country, but their own region? It was a sort of management plan called Going Global. I actually think it made total sense but it did mean mean I was quite quickly or my posting there was shorter than expected so I went back to London and then I the same time the BBC starts offering packages like voluntary redundancy packages which uh, were and it still happens this day you sort of think "Mm, if I don't take this now I might regret it so Mm -hmm. I took it and thought with this chunk of money I can set off this illustrious freelance career within six months of course I spent the money (laughs) but no it was that was my sort of route out and then I went freelance and the first place I went after that was Brazil okay interesting I didn't know you had come through Brazil I mean you obviously spoke Spanish by this point and that is kind of a left turn or right turn or whatever the phrase is like to then go to Portuguese speaking country why did you do that? Yeah, I mean, the the language is, I actually think there are, the, you know, some people say that learning Portuguese when you speak Spanish is actually almost more difficult than starting from scratch because you you have that constant confusion mm-hmm. of where you are. Uh, the reason I went to Brazil was I was sitting in London and CGTN, the Chinese English language channel, was sort of relaunching and someone I knew from the BBC who'd also being cut out of a job in Latin America joined and and had given them my name they called up and said look if you if you want to go back to Latin America if you base yourself in Brazil you can pitch documentaries or features we have a huge appetite so I thought that's a good cushion (laughs) to start with and so that's why I went off to Sao Paulo and first I had to find a a camera crew and, and the rest of it and it was a a sort of amazing change from the BBC that I would say pitch. Why don't we go to Easter Island and obviously not not part of Brazil and not really anywhere near Brazil and do a documentary about it opening up to tourism to a greater extent. 
And they said, fine, so off we go for two weeks. That was a, a good reason to be there. And, you know, Brazil is a, obviously an incredibly important part of the regional story. So I'm very glad I spent about two and a half years there, lived in Sao Paulo and in Rio, travelled quite extensively around Brazil. During that time, I also visited Venezuela in 2012 and 2013 for the the final election campaign of Hugo Chavez in 2012 and then his death in 2013. Mm-hmm. And that's what piqued my interest in Venezuela, as well as the Cuba background. You know, it's a, it was interesting to see the sort of, to a certain extent, an attempt to do a Cuba in a different country. I know there are huge differences, but, you know, some people within the, the Venezuelan government were hoping to copy, to a certain extent, some of the Cuban things. So visiting Venezuela made me think this is a really interesting story. And then there was an opportunity to move there in 2015, which I did. And at the same time, I took up the job for the Times, the London Times, as covering the whole of Latin America for them. And initially we thought, yeah, Venezuela, you know, without Hugo Chavez, is this a big story? A lot of, a lot of there's a whole sort of uh, group of journalists that have, thrived under the Hugo Chavez story you know that it's like Cuba you know there's nothing to push the interest the global interest in a story than a really charismatic leader which mm-hmm. Castro of course was as as was Chavez now that without him there was a feeling of mm, how interesting is is Venezuela I said yeah you know unfortunately it's interesting for another way and that is its demise so I stayed there I, there was a plan actually to move to Mexico City but I decided you know, I and the Times decided to stay in Venezuela and very glad I did because, you know, therefore I've witnessed this amazing, sad and desperate and appalling, really, collapse of a country, but a fascinating story to tell and an important story to tell. 20% of the, of the population has emigrated. You know, you've seen this extraordinary middle class collapse, which has been resonant for people all over the world because these are teachers and doctors and people that would normally be having a life that was um, sort of uh, relevant and would resonate with say middle-class readers of a British newspaper or television viewers or whatever and how that all changed so dramatically and yeah I'm I'm still there. Yeah wow where to start with that I guess I'm curious since you're you're now working for you know at that time when you're there already you're you're working for the times of london you're working for uh, cgtn and now you're also doing work for the economist so mm-hmm. something big happens in venezuela who do you turn to first or are you writing something oh, for the times of london while right. you're also filming something for cgtn and then oh you know at the end of the week you write something up for the economist when the story's sort of bubbling along Three is fine. Three outlets is fine. When it's big, it's pretty difficult to manage and you think you've got one too many. They've all been completely understanding, to be quite honest and fair, and I've done my best. But yeah, 2017, 2018, I was doing extraordinarily long days for weeks on end. You know, you become a bit of of a machine in a way. Fortunately, there is, you know, there are different deadlines, different requirements, etc., etc. So it was, you know, we just managed to get away with it, really. But I do 
envy some of my colleagues where you know you just have one direct line editor one publication a sort of simpler setup because freelance life is often difficult to get enough work but when there's too much work it's it's also really tough because when does the day stop when does it start all the rest of it but as it happened the story got really really exciting 2017 2018 2019 you know there's that the key ingredients of global interest in a story is is conflict basically and and that idea that this country could go one way or the other it could you know maduro could fall that, that that's what people felt i mean we tried to say that it was not as likely as it might seem constant question is how can this possibly go on the answer is you know look at cuba look at look at all sorts of different countries it's not a question purely of the popularity of the leader or the popularity of the opposition there are a whole lot of factors that enable governments to stay in power and do not for any moment dismiss maduro as some kind of idiot he's absolutely not and anyone who knows him or who's you know i've frankly has been close to him just seen him operate the image he gives perhaps deliberately or or perhaps accidentally we're not quite sure of this sort of buffoon you know sometimes that's it's an act you know the guy's a brilliant brilliant manager of a really impossible situation brilliant in terms of surviving that situation not necessarily in terms of making a better place for venezuelans to live in but so anyway there was this drama of of it could go either way and then since what do we say mid 2019 or certainly end of 2019 2020 it became pretty clear that you know it's not gonna be a radical change in that government soon and therefore actually the interest diminishes quite a lot it's still a very very as you know important regional story and let's see how it turns out but fortunately in a way in terms of workload notes it's a bit more manageable than it was in the in the heady days of early 2019 Right, yeah, and the the protests and, you know, a lot of violence in the streets. How did you handle, I guess, just even more generally covering, you know, the, the violence, the the riots and things like that that were happening? I mean, you saw a lot of dramatic images of hurt protesters and things like that. I mean, it's always kind of a, a push and pull, but how, how in the middle of it do you get um, and how how much do you keep your distance? Yeah, I mean, the protests were sort of quite formulaic in a funny way. You know, when you'd seen one, you knew you knew where the danger was and where the sort of safety or safe viewpoint was. So, yeah, I was able to get pretty close enough to see it happen without taking un- unnecessary risk. But those protests, again, you just absolutely have to be there to understand it. And that is that you'd see these more than a million people on a few occasions out on the streets and you go into that protest and it would be peaceful really it would be old ladies in white t-shirts and people selling water and chanting and making jokes uh, against the government etc etc and incredibly impressive images and then right at the end right at the front there'd be the sort of point of conflict with guys throwing stones at the security forces. Security forces, on several occasions, 
directly firing tear gas canisters towards protesters. Those were the images, of course, that always made it onto the front page of the paper. But the bigger sort of picture was more complicated and it showed there was a big feeling of just can we get enough people out in the streets and that will somehow change it. But actually, they got these big numbers, but they never got the absolutely sort of catastrophic numbers for the government that you need. You need the people from the barrios to come down in huge numbers and just say we've had enough. And if they'd done that, I think there would have been change. But it was difficult. It was a. It was a sort of just what we used to say amongst some of the correspondents there is if this had been Egypt or somewhere like that, these million people on the streets, they would have all just been angry and it would have been impossible for the government to stop them going where they want to go and all the rest of it but this was this sort of mix of a general sort of outpouring of no we want a more democratic country we want to get rid of Maduro but a a limitation on how much people were totally understandably prepared to put themselves at risk and how good the government was at, at stopping it from getting out of control so um no extraordinary moments at times and then what happened and it you know it becomes really noticeable living there is it failed and the Guaido project failed and as a result a whole lot of people that you saw at the front of those protests the sort of young angry youth have left so in Caracas you just see people you know the majority of the people are under 16 or over 45 you're not going to get a sort of social uprising and a change of the of the politics of the country unless you have that big number of people of the right age if you, if you want to do an uprising we'll do it so what a change i mean what the the attraction for me when i first for venezuela when i first went there in 2012 2013 actually in contrast to brazil at the time because i was in brazil under dilma when there were it was sort of it was sort of soft, a less exciting time for politics then. In a way, you go to Venezuela and everyone has a very strong political opinion, and that that's I thought this what a great place to work. You know, you just if you want to go and get a vox pop, you just walk out of your house a few blocks, and you can get actually quite an intelligent and opinionated discussion of the future of this country. If I go out there now. Politics is almost a dirty word. People are sick of the opposition. They're sick of the government. It's another, there's another sort of extraordinary twist to it, and that is particularly the sort of bubble of Caracas has become this. There's this sort of odd mini boom going on, driven by almost no tax, dollarization, remittances coming in, a few people coming back, people who are sanctioned, having nowhere else to spend their money. So, you know, people describe it as a sort of perestroika, an economic perestroika going on, and that's sort of another weird, fascinating time to be there. But it's not this sense of of a country on the brink of change. Right. And at this point, you've been there... uh, Venezuela, kind of six years. Six years. Let's see. Okay. well, I think that kind of takes us up to present. Yeah, let's plunge on talk about some stories next. Um, So next up, I like to ask two questions about stories you've done over the course of your career, or as is the case in the first one, a story you haven't done. Um, I like to first start with a story that got away, a story you 
wanted to do but never were able to pull it off for whatever reason anything <laughs> spring to mind yeah i mean i think i think the the lesson of all of those failures is you've got to grab the opportunity when it comes don't think mm, that's a good story i might do that in a few months right the one uh, i mean it absolutely pains me to tell you this story probably the best sort of potential scoop and absolute amazing accident of luck and fascinating story was in Cuba. It was just as I was leaving as well. So I was sort of on my way out. But via a friend, I accidentally, really, I mean, genuinely accidentally was, we were we were coming back from the beach, actually, outside Havana. And he said, just got to drop something off at this old um, Australian bloke I know who lives up this hill. And uh, I hope you don't mind. Uh, maybe we'll have a quick cup of coffee with him or something so I said yeah sure sure and we go into this this sort of bungalow overlooking the sea and this white haired white bearded man emerges and he knows my friend and I'm introduced and I think he didn't sound Australian to me he sounds American Hmm. and my friend was not European and so he didn't necessarily immediately notice the difference and we sat down and I thought this guy is not who he's pretending to be he says he's called Robert Hunter he says he's Australian and he says he's doing a bit of business here and living with his younger Cuban wife I'd been doing a bit of research into a fugitive from justice called Robert Vesco who was spent a bit of time in Cuba but then sort of disappeared and died this wasn't Robert Vesco but this I was pretty sure was a guy called Frank Turpel who was a rogue CIA agent who had this absolutely extraordinary life and career that he spent a lot of time in the Middle East. He worked a bit for Yasser Arafat. He then went to Uganda. He shipped Hmm. arms for Idi Amin. He was a wanted man in the United States. There was a a documentary made in the 80s or about him called I think the world's most wanted man and then people knew he might have been in Cuba but no one everyone has lost track of him and there he was and I sort of hinted I knew who he possibly was and he was getting on at that stage and I then met him two or three times afterwards and started discussing about whether he wanted to tell his story and he was not reluctant he sort of said he'd think about it because he was potentially in trouble in Cuba if he did, and, and actually, of course, potentially I was too. So we were, we were sort of dancing around how we might do about this fact that his story had to a certain extent been told for the first half of his, or the first two-thirds of his life, but there was a whole lot since that was completely fascinating. And eventually we sort of agreed. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, talk, you know, next time you come back to Cuba, or we do that. And... It was just really difficult. I mean, it was really circumstance. It was, you know, I was unaccredited. I didn't want to sort of put myself in serious risk by reporting something highly sensitive. But I was, st- I was sort of prepared to do it. But I, then I, I was in Mexico or Brazil, and I couldn't get back. And then I did go back on a holiday actually, and sort of tried to get in touch with him. And heard he was in hospital. Went to see him in hospital, and just. You know, for, was only able to see him for five minutes and he was seriously ill and 
weeks later he died. So his story, a lot of that story died with him. I should have just done that as quickly as possible and, and all hesitancy should have gone by the by. It was, it was a difficult one, but in the end I wrote his, I wrote a, a sort of obituary in The Guardian of him. And in fact, the New Yorker picked up on it as well, I think from my story, you know. But that was the, definitely one of, one of several stories that got away, but probably the most annoying. Yeah, wow, that's an incredible uh, bit of, I don't know, coincidence or what mm. to come across him and, you know, have some clue who he might be. Um, but, yeah, that's a tough one to, to get away. But uh, what can you do? And there's a, a reason mm. why I asked that question first um, to not uh, end on that. So now, I guess, to turn towards kind of a, a sunnier story or maybe not in subject matter, but a, a story that you did do. If you could pick a story from any time in your career, tell us a little bit about it, you know, how things kicked off. I mean, if it was a feature or how you got the idea, if it's a more of a breaking news saga, that that's fine too. Um, and just kind of take us through start to finish how you went about it. I think one, it, God, it goes back. I mean, this isn't to say there haven't been more recent stories, but one that always struck me as amazing when I was there and sort of satisfying when I was doing it was actually back in 2004 when I was sent from Cuba to Haiti because there was a rebellion going on against Aristide and it looked like his political future was in serious trouble and it sort of sticks out in many ways. One is that I got there, it was BBC still, and there was a colleague of mine called Claire Marshall who also worked for the World Service and she'd been in Haiti for a few weeks before she wasn't based there but she'd been there a few weeks before and we got there and there was that slight difficulty of persuading the head office despite the fact they'd sent us there that that we needed to necessarily be there a long time and there were serious security worries about us being there a long time and we responsibly I would say and sensibly said look we think it's safe and we also think this is a potentially really very important and interesting story and we I'd say probably Claire did more of the arguing than I did and more successfully and they said okay you can stay and it meant that we witnessed history you know a lot of people had left all the sort of big networks had sort of left in these final days of Aristide as it wasn't quite clear what was going to happen and their security people were saying oh my god you know we can't necessarily protect you properly etc and it's something you know does it happen anymore of watching the president leave marched by the marines onto a plane and leaving into exile and that feeling of I've seen this and there's not a whole lot of Twitter or anything like that. So when I'm doing a live on the BBC, I am actually telling them information that they can't get elsewhere. I think in the modern day, that's kind of ended. You know, you felt you were just reporting the facts as they unroll in front of you and it's worthwhile doing it. You know, incredibly important story for the future of Haiti, for the future of analysis ever since of what's been going on in that region that's a very controversial departure still the arguments go on about how much the u.s was involved in fact a lot of even i think last week someone i on a whatsapp group i was in was complaining about the coverage of haiti in 2004 and and it was nice to be able to say look man i actually was there i can tell you what we saw and 
what you might have read in your magazine or whatever by someone who wasn't there is not necessarily quite doesn't marry with the facts so I think that's been all of the satisfying stories that I look back on is is sort of being there and and having an opportunity to see things or talk to people who then become really important so if you spare me another couple of examples sure I I often think journalism's a, a sort of young person's game in a way and there is an argument for that but if you can stick it out you know so I've been doing it since early 90s not quite as long as one of your previous contributors, Anthony Bodle. But, you know, when you've been around for a bit, it means that you can say, well, I talked to Hugo Chavez in 2002, and he was quite a different person then than he became, or this was just what he was like. So, yeah, in, I actually, was it in 2002? I think it was 2003, probably, that I was in Mexico for a summit, and Hugo Chavez was there. And again, a sort of big advantage of the BBC name is it you do get relatively better chance of talking to these figures and we we waited six or seven hours after the appointed time for Hugo Chavez to walk in the room (laughs) Uh, and I spent I did a sort of half an hour interview with him which unfortunately we probably used five minutes of it maximum but what that interview gave me was just an opportunity to be in a room with this historical figure and therefore understand a bit of the myth and the the rest of it. And it was striking, you know, the guy, incredibly charming, a brilliant, you know, surrounded by sort of generals and like Mexican army people, Venezuelan army people, his sort of team of glamorous assistants and all the rest of it. But he's just absolutely brilliant with everyone, you know, to the person who brought the coffee or the security people or even our team, you know, the camera person, et cetera, et cetera. So definitely a sort of gifted communicator, but also no sense of other people's time in the slightest, you know, barely an apology that he kept <laughs> waiting for, for all day. But that was that was useful little sort of memory for when a decade later you're covering his death and you can sort of remember what he was like at his prime really also i i spoke to bolsonaro before he was just about to become a candidate for the 2018 election and again i'm really difficult to get a sit down interview with him now but i was able to sit down with him for 45 minutes and fascinating you know completely not what i expected I, we all know we know now but I thought a rather formal, fierce, sort of intimidating character. But he's, as you know better than anyone, he's he's completely the opposite. He sort of plays up being one of the lads and very informal, sort of clearly had, hadn't spent a whole lot of time worrying about where he bought his suit or the rest of it, which was which was sort of... Not the caricature of a potentially of sort of ex-military right-wing leader, but that's because he's a maverick, really. And in the room were his sons, who were absolutely managing the whole thing, which, of course, became very important to understand him. We walked through Congress. Everyone knew him, which, you know, again, that's part of his trick, that he's sort of played the Congress quite cleverly in some ways. And then sort of behind us were guns and 
statues of Jesus and all the rest of it, all that all that sort of stuff <laughs> that you, you you've got to be in the room to observe really so never regretted an opportunity to speak to someone and the luck is when it's someone who then becomes a whole lot more important so you get the access when they're not so important that would be impossible once they go up the ladder right yeah yeah i mean that's happened to me in small ways with uh, you know this or that person who becomes a minister they were whatever in congress before and you don't quite see it coming and it's like oh i wish i already had their whatsapp and was chummy with them sure i can't say you know that's happened with presidents at all yeah those are great anecdotes uh so then the next section is the lightning round which is more fast-paced questions do you feel ready for that sure yeah okay great what is a publication you read listen to or watch just for fun so vaguely journalistic in nature but something that doesn't directly relate to your job there's a publication a weekly publication in in the uk called private eye which is a sort of satirical magazine would be one way it's it's actually it's not glossy at all but it's it's sort of required, particularly if you're if you if you're reporting on the UK, which I'm not really, but it's very useful for that. It has the sort of inside scoop of the politics and the journalism and the media and and the rest of it. But it also often is found to have reported stuff years before other others on sort of important scandals and that sort of thing. So uh, I I subscribe to that. Then the next question is, what is the best journalistic article piece or, again, whatever medium? It doesn't have to be written, but journalistic in nature that you've consumed lately. Uh, St- uh, Steve Rosenberg's BBC Moscow correspondent interview with Lukashenko. It was just in the last week or so. One of the best interviews I've ever seen, particularly because I know just how difficult it is to tease anything out of these authoritarian characters and not get annoyed and not be thrown out when he did it in fluent Russian and just got it I, I you know watched with with real respect for how he kept his calm and sort of cleverly teased these answers out you know none of this sort of gotcha stuff that is a bit too prevalent I see I think these days and kind of doesn't get anywhere of just a sort of clever way of framing questions you know like I I think one of the first ones was okay you won 80 percent of the vote apparently so how come you get so many people out on the street protesting against you I mean how how is that sort of mathematically possible when you've just got 80 percent of the vote surely the majority would be sort of saying they love the president and it kind of wrong-footed him but wasn't sort of too offensive that it was quite revelatory as a result, uh, the interview. God, if I'd ever had an opportunity to talk to someone like Fidel Castro or Chavez properly, and I mean, both different characters in many ways, but he did a great job of it, and it's anyone listening to this should, should listen to that. Yeah, I'll check it out. I mean, those high-pressure situations, like it's kind of an art to hitting it just right um, to try to tease information out 
Is there any particular subject matter you read into that isn't specifically related to your job? So anything that you kind of geek out about in your spare time? I'm quite interested in classic cars or certainly old cars. And it's one of the advantages of living in Venezuela is you can drive a clapped out old Mercedes and you won't have to pay very much to buy it and it will cost you still not very much to put the fuel in it. So I follow a whole lot of stuff on Instagram and the rest of it on that. There's a YouTube channel called Harry's Garage, which is a sort of a guy who lives on a farm in England and has nice cars and occasionally drives them, you know, down to Morocco or somewhere like that. So I quite I quite like all of that stuff. The next one is if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? Uh, if it's got to be one, I think, uh, I mean, he's and he's had a completely different career to mine, really, but it would be more fun being him than me, I reckon, is Louis Theroux, who's a British documentary maker who goes into these quirky bits of society and interviews people in a, something I admire is this kind of totally non-confrontational way and just sort of hangs out with naturists in the middle of Arizona or gun club enthusiasts or whatever you know and just finds out what makes people tick and he does it so expertly it would be great to be here another another if I can go for two another one who I remember growing up I always thought was sort of old-fashioned and sort of <laughs> and and embarrassing and he you probably won't have heard him he's a guy who who another British guy called Alan Wicker who used to do a series called wicker's world and it was kind of ridiculous in a way that he'd go off in his sort of three-piece suit to various places that most people hadn't heard of like paraguay or haiti and he'd interview the leaders so he did a what i mean you know on reflection I, that's why i'm thinking of him because i saw it quite recently brilliant interview with papa doc you know and he again he had that style of just going in and talking to the guy if he's just having a chat with him and not you know, what is the point of going in and saying you're a cruel, appalling dictator and you've killed a whole... I mean, you you make it clear you know that and you say that, but you, you don't sort of go in aggressively because the, the interview won't happen in the first place. But he had a very, very interesting career, again at a time when the world was a bigger place in many ways. So if you got on a plane to Paraguay, you'd be exploring a place that most people really really knew nothing about so it's difficult to to mimic any of that now when everywhere is online but they're two people but definitely Louis Theroux would be great fun to be him yeah for sure the Theroux family is all very interesting (laughs) what is one thing most people don't know about you maybe this is a good place to shoehorn this in because I forgot to to ask earlier but I did see you know, tagged on at the end of your bio, it says he is also the author of six children's books. And I was just going to ask, what's that all about? Yeah, well, you remember I told you, uh, you know, my journalistic career started on the Young Telegraph and News Round. And it was all sort of part of that thing was I therefore met children's publishers. And one of them, you know, I said, well, what about doing a series of books about jobs or workplaces so it was a series one was called the i mean it's really kind of for quite small children one was called the airport one was called the hospital one was called the police station and we specifically 
said what each person in this little workplace did with real people. So it was sort of, one could flatter oneself and say it was a bit ahead of your time, but it was a nice little project and it did quite well. It sort of sold quite, um, it was picked up by quite a few schools in the UK. And then, of course, it's time runs out. But a friend of mine relatively recently, who was in Pakistan, said he saw it in a, he saw them in a bookstall there. Couldn't believe it, you know, in the Islamabad or somewhere <laughs> he saw he saw my name on a book and I think they'd probably used it as a sort of English learning thing in Pakistan. So yeah, that was, that's the story behind those books. That's pretty cool. Uh, what, what do you think is like kind of a, a pinch me moment in your career where you were in a place or a situation could be serious, could be funny, could be anything really, but that you just can't believe this is my life that, you know, I'm out here doing this as my job any moment come to mind? I mean, there are lots. I mean, I, I tell you what I think is the best bit about the job is it's not the going, you know, people say like recently I was going to go to Barbados to do a story and everyone's, oh, you lucky bastard, you know, going off to this <laughs> Caribbean or whatever. I, I mean, of course, it's lovely being paid to go to really nice places, but I kind of find the most interesting is going somewhere somewhat random that you never would visit as part of a tourist or holiday itinerary and you'd only visit by doing this weird job so there are lots of times I've been in some nondescript little town in Brazil because some mayor or you've got to interview someone and you're just sitting in the bar waiting to do the interview the next day and you think god I would never be here if it wasn't for this job and it's Mm -hmm. always interesting being somewhere but of a sort of pinch me moment, uh, I mean, to be honest, there have been lots. I mean, one was going in the Amazon with a, a sort of eccentric Italian guy who'd bought a boat and sort of fancied himself as the Fitzcarraldo sort of hero and was doing a portable cinemas to little Amazon villages. So he'd hmm. go into these villages where they had never watched a film before you know on the big screen he set up his big screen and play life is beautiful or some sort of romantic film like this and watch these little kids sort of intrigued by the show and he'd make popcorn and the rest of it i made a little documentary on on this and i remember sleeping on his boat and getting up in the morning and going for a swim in the amazon and thinking it's a nice thing to be paid to do this, and I'd probably do it if I wasn't paid, to be quite honest. Wow, yeah, that's a great story. What is your favorite film, book, TV, or other piece of media about journalists, and why? I mean, I'll cheat a bit, and again, not just do one, might do two, because one is trivial, but having worked in a television newsroom, and that was basically how I started my career, was as a producer on the Nine Clock News, Anchorman with Ron Burgundy, <laughs> I mean, is uh, endlessly hilarious. I mean, I think I kind of think British TV news is not, you know, you perhaps don't have the more extreme characters than than you once had, particularly probably in the 80s and 90s in the US. But knowing behind the scenes, the real story, and yet the sort of pomposity of the actual show, I mean, it doesn't really happen so much with rolling news and cable news, etc. in a way, but... That was a amusing film. And Brooks, the 
Graham Greene's Quite the Quite American, I think, was one of my favourite novels, sort of, which included a journalist and actually was also a film with Michael Caine. It's in a way a, a love story, but the beginning of it is quite evocative of life as a foreign correspondent, and it slightly reminded me of Havana that bit where you know you're sort of a long way away from the bosses, you have not much idea what's going on, and you sometimes wonder if they've forgotten you or not. And I think Graham Greene captures that really well. Yeah, those are two good ones. I haven't read uh, the Graham Greene one, but I mean, Anchorman certainly I've seen many times. <laughs> And then the last question is, qualifications aside, if you could not be a journalist, what job would you do? So here I am in London in the same house as my dad, who's now in his 90s. But he remembered when I used to say, they used to say, what are you going to do? And he said, you know what I really want to do? I want to be ambassador to Moscow. (laughs) But I want to do it just straight in there. None of the kind of working away up the ladder. So that apparently was my ambition when I was a teenager. And yeah, I think, I mean, I've got lots of friends who are diplomats. I think there are a lot of crossovers with journalism that you end up going to places and you have this sort of access to people through your job, which is a privilege. And you're sort of trying to explain a foreign place to people who aren't necessarily that familiar with it so yeah that would be quite fun of course and a whole lot more perks than you do as a <laughs> lowly journalist <laughs> and more respect and all the rest of it but uh, <laughs> the downside of downside of course is you have to sort of behave yourself probably more than we do which is a, a bit of a problem <laughs> right yeah yeah you gotta follow the rules for 25 years and then maybe you'll be yeah. ambassador and even then you'll have to follow what the politicians tell you to exactly do. Um, yeah. but you can have like seven children in a house with a pool so exactly <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> okay great well yeah this has been great so uh that's all the questions i'll just uh, wrap up by saying thanks so much for coming on the podcast Stephen. hey it's my pleasure thanks for inviting me That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Stephen Gibbs, a Venezuela-based journalist for The Times of London, The Economist, and CGTN. I'll post links to some of the things Stephen talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like this episode of Foreign Correspondence, please subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, February 6th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.